Hello, Fellowship. Thank you for participating in the elder nomination process. After a deliberate season of prayer, discussion, and seeking the heart of God, our elders have three new candidates for the office of elder to present to you. Hello, Fellowship. My name is Bill Fries. My wife, Lee, and I have been attending Fellowship for over 15 years. During that time, I've been blessed to be part of small group ministry, such as community group leader, welcome and connection team member, prayer team member, and Discover Fellowship support. Our faith has grown from being members at Fellowship Church, and it's a humbling honor to be nominated as an elder candidate. Hi, Fellowship. My name is Charles Greathouse. My family and I have been attending Fellowship since 2008. My wife, Susan, and I have three children, Jonathan, Zachary, and Charlotte. I'm so grateful for how our body has encouraged, challenged, and led our family to the Word of God over the years. From engaging in and leading community groups to serving in FSM as a cell group leader, I have felt His hand at work in this place and through His people. I'm so very humbled and honored to serve you all as an elder candidate at Fellowship. Hi, my name is Nick Rowland, and my wife Cassie and I have been a part of Fellowship for 15 years married together and then many more years before that. And Fellowship has been a part of my journey walking with Jesus uh, in so many ways. Going back to middle school and growing up in FSM, I was discipled here and I was taught how to serve here. And as I moved into college and adult years, volunteering in the student ministry and, and reaching a point in my adult life, my early adult life, where I became aware of the desperation of my hurts and my hangups and my habits. And at that time, Celebrate Recovery was a crucial place for me to begin the process of healing. And uh, I've been able to serve in student ministry, on the worship team, in the training center, community groups, and preaching. And it's been just a wonderful place for, for my wife and I to grow. We have a 12-year-old daughter uh, who is thriving here, and my wife serves in the, in, has served in many capacities, currently serves on the worship team. One of the things I appreciate most about this church is the fact that the focus is always put on Jesus and not on any one personality or leader. And so we all are broken people who need Jesus and need grace, and yet the Holy Spirit empowers us to serve in a lot of different ways, and that's a really exciting thing to be a part of. Uh, I'm deeply humbled and honored to be considered as an elder candidate. Thank you, Bill, Charles, and Nick for your willingness to participate in the elder nomination process as a candidate for the office of elder. It's a tremendous responsibility to be an elder of Fellowship Bible Church. Your willingness to be a candidate speaks highly of your character, integrity, commitment to Christ, and service to God through fellowship. Now, if you are a member of our church, we have one more request of you. If for some biblical reason, you feel you cannot follow a particular candidate's leadership, please email me, mirapier at fellowshipnwa.org, stating your biblical objection, and please do so no later than Thursday, February the 29th. After receiving your notice, I will call you personally, and we can discuss your objection, which must have merit based on biblical elder qualifications. We require that all elders have 100% affirmation from our body. If you have no objection, we assume that you are affirming the candidates the elders have set forth from the pool of nominees you provided. Please pray for these new candidates as well as our current elders. And finally, we would like to thank Roger Hill, 
and Scott Thompson for their years of faithful service as elders. They have represented our body well and will now become shepherding elders. If you see them, express your gratitude and appreciation for their years of faithful service. Blessings to each of you. Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Man, I, I just want to take a moment and just say I'm so grateful for our elder nomination process that we have here at our church. Uh, as somebody who grew up in a lot of different churches and that wasn't a part of it, I love how Fellowship does that. And it's one of the ways that we keep Jesus central to what we do here and not make it about a personality, as Nick was saying in there. Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Uh, my name is Andy Petrie, and I'm so glad to be here with you all today. If we haven't met, I uh, have the privilege of being able to lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and uh, just grateful to be here with you this morning. Hey, if you could do me a favor, we've got some people in the back coming in trying to find some seats. If you could scoot to the left, if you've got any empty, empty chairs to the left of you, could you scoot over down to the left, that way we can free up some space for folks that are coming in. Well, we got a couple things that we wanted to make you aware of this morning that we have going on here at Fellowship Fayetteville. Uh, I'll let you all get settled for a second because these are pretty cool. So the first one is, is this. This coming Wednesday night, our uh, family ministries here at Fellowship Fayetteville are putting on a parent tech forum. It, it's a, a place for us to, to get equipping in our parenting uh, in, in three key areas that our kids are facing. Uh, in the area of video game and technology addiction, the area of pornography and how do we address that and talk with that and lead our kids through through dealing with that area, and then uh, the area of social media and, and some of the ways that it can impact our mental health, anxiety, depression, those types of things. And so if you're, if you're a parent and you, and you want to get equipped in those areas, come this, this coming Wednesday night. We'd love to see you there. Also, another really incredible thing that's, that's going on on March 2nd is we're, we have something that we're calling the Restoration Gathering. It's, it's being put on by uh, our, our college women's uh, leadership uh, to deal with and uh, help give us language and, and walk through an area that's actually pretty common to a lot of folks, uh, but in particular uh, 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 women as well, as, as we walk through body image issues. And, and so if that's something that uh, if, if you're a college girl in here and, and you're interested in either being equipped in that area or maybe that's a part of your story, uh, we'd, we'd love for you to, to come and be a part of that on March 2nd. That is specifically a, a women's event. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there. And so we, we'd love for you to, to come and check that out. Uh, and then finally, uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Uh, mentioned that I get to lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry here. And uh, we started the year off with a three-week series based on the principles of Celebrate Recovery. And I just wanted to say thank you, Fellowship, for the way that you've just embraced uh, what, what we do on Friday night and, and the way that so many of you have gotten plugged in, the community groups coming, people sticking around and getting plugged in deeper. And it's just been really humbling to watch the, the healing that's continuing to happen on Friday nights. I'm grateful that our church has a place like Celebrate Recovery so that we can deal with whatever hurts, whatever hang-ups, whatever habits we've got going on in our life and, and allow Jesus to speak into those areas. A couple weeks ago, we had a uh, step study group, which is one of our Celebrate Recovery small groups, uh, finish up, and, and we were celebrating just the impact that that's had on the men in those groups. And 
couple quotes that came out of that from some of the guys in the groups. One of them said this. He said, being a part of a step study helped me to learn to practice being more honest and real. The material was really great, but the best part was that I had a group of guys that I could work through it with. We could process hard things together, and we could be able to grow alongside each other as we point each other towards Jesus. And then another guy said this, and I love this. He said, I tried again and again to free myself from the struggles I had in my life, but it never got better on my own. There were seasons of freedom, but I kept falling back. But God used Celebrate Recovery in this step study to show me what it looks like to daily surrender to him and to grow closer to Jesus in the midst of my struggles. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that cool to see? I love so much that we're a church where it's, it's okay to not be okay but to know that we can walk towards Jesus together, towards deeper healing and freedom. And so thank you, fellowship. I just wanted to say, hey, if you're dealing with anything in your life, please come check out Celebrate Recovery on a Friday night. We meet over in the Student Center at 7 o'clock, and we would love to walk alongside you in whatever it is you're carrying. But with that said, would you pray with me as we step in to our morning? Lord, we love you. Thank you for today, and thank you for just who you are and what you've done for us. This morning, as we step into uh, walking through your word, Lord, would you use it to transform us, give us another angle of the way that you love us, and Lord, draw us deeper to you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Thank you, Andy and Julie. I appreciate all you guys do to shepherd our Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Fellowship Fayetteville. If I haven't met you, uh, my name's Clark and I have the privilege of serving as one of your teaching pastors, one of your pastors here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and you're my church family, and so I'm incredibly grateful to be with you uh, on this Sunday. If you're new with us, uh, you have found us in the middle, right in the middle of our Life of King David series, the rise and fall and restoration of David, and so we'll continue in that this morning. If you have your Bibles and want to um, be near the passage that we're going to be kind of working through together, 2 Samuel chapter 9 um, will walk us through that story, and you'll see that on the screen through our time of worship together as well this morning. I have a question for you as we consider our theme this morning. Have you ever been the recipient of an outrageous, an outrageous act of kindness? Have you ever been the recipient? of an outrageous act of kindness. Or maybe for some of you, you were the benevolent one. Have you ever extended an outrageous act of kindness to someone? Maybe they're in this room, maybe they're outside these walls. Or how about this? What do you think of when you think of the kindness of God? When you think of God, do you connect that attribute to him? Is kindness one of the words? Maybe not. What do you think of your heart, your mind, your emotions? What comes to bear in your thoughts and your heart when you think of kindness? Three different times in our passage today, the word is used twice connected to David and then once connected to David's expression as a man after God's own heart, of God's kindness. And as we consider that word in its context and the way that it's used in 
the Old Testament. It's actually a pretty difficult word, kindness, uh, to explain. So we're going to do that through narrative and story this morning. It's the word that's used of of the loyal love that was shown by Ruth to her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's, it's in its most rudimentary form, it means of goodness or faithfulness. When the author's trying to capture the idea of both mercy and grace, this word is used. The word that we've, uh, the, the phrase that we've used around here over the years is just covenant faithfulness. God has made a covenant, a promise to his people, and because he's a covenant-keeping God, he's going to be faithful to keep that promise. In the Old Testament, it's this word that's used to describe God's actions in rescuing his children through the Red Sea event. It's the word that's actually used to describe how God treats and views the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the word that's used to describe Ezra's rebuilding of the temple. As we move into the New Testament, it's this concept that's used to describe what some of us call common grace, where God brings rain down to provide food and joy and fruitful crops for both believers and unbelievers, kindness. It's the word that's used in Romans that leads us to repentance. It's it's the idea that's captured on the cross and the resurrection, the pinnacle of kindness. And finally, it's the expression that God brings out in us when we walk in his spirit. It's a fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit of kindness, the way we're to treat one another in this family of faith. And throughout the biblical narrative, there seem to be three responses to this kind of kindness. One is worship, which is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to extol God for his Kindness in and through this narrative. Repentance, a turning away from unkindness and a turning to God to see his kindness. And then finally, kindness towards one another and towards those outside of these walls. And so as an expression of God's creativity, he is creator God. You and I are created in his image and many of you have creative gifts. And some of those gifts are gonna be on display here this morning, not for exhibition or for performance, but for his honor and his glory and the display of his glory. So you're going to see that this morning. So as a family of faith, I want to invite you into a narrative on the kindness of God. Stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. Maybe pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And when the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid. Cause I know that you love me Your love never fails 
Chaos. Panic rushes through the streets of Gibeah like a flash flood, whispering, shouting, weeping, cheering, terrified, worry, trembling hope. One stimulus instantly weaves a motley patchwork of response. The shades of reaction betray disparate loyalties, unearth contrasting convictions. At first, it seemed like a rumor emerging phantom-like from the lips of the first herald, a ghostly apparition, a report without substance, too too world-changing to be real. But then came another messenger and another, every successive account giving shape, mass, density to the news. Finally, the truth could not be ignored. King Saul and his eldest son, Jonathan, are dead. Saul left Yahweh, and so Yahweh left him. Chose another, or so the rumors go. If it's chaos on the streets, it's mayhem in the palace. Transitions of power have a way of tempting violence which means those of the formerly, the suddenly former regime fear for their lives. So attendants run through the corridors doing their best to heed the hollered instructions of the royal family, shaking hands, stuff gold and silver into chests, shove clothing into sacks, tie scrolls into bundles. Everyone is leaving and no one knows where to go. In one room, 
tears streak the face of a woman who throws whatever she can find into a satchel. A five-year-old boy stands watching her, helpless and confused. If he asks his nanny what's going on, she tells him with feigned excitement, we're going on a journey. He clutches a wooden toy, perhaps, a figure she whittled for him to keep him company while his father is away at war. When will he return? He's asked a thousand times. Soon, the answer comes again and again. For now, don't you think this is a good likeness of him? She'd hold up the toy and nod approvingly. Why, I think this, this looks exactly like the prince. I almost think I should bow. Come, Mephibosheth, bow with me to your father, Prince Jonathan. Giggles from the boy, a sigh of relief from the woman. But here, now, there, there is no laughter. There are no sighs of relief. The boy can can feel the disquiet in his bones, his nurse's anxiety writ large and contagious. Now, Mephibosheth, we must go now. She takes his hand and leads him out into the hall, but it's all havoc, chaos, and wailing and yelling and pushing. The boy's eyes widen and fill with tears. He feels the woman scoop him up run toward the courtyard with him in her arms. The child buries his head in her bosom and tries to hold on in the crush. Finally, daylight. He feels her now quicken the pace, hears her shout at people to move out of the way. He's crying now. He's terrified. And then, crack! A searing pain fires through his ankles and up into his legs. He screams and looks around. They've fallen, and, and there's terror on his nanny's face. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She's crying now and pulling him to his feet, but he screams again. He cannot walk. I'm sorry, she cries again. We have to go. I'm so sorry. And she picks him up, runs, the little boy wailing as his family and his home disappear into blurred bedlam. Mephibosheth, son of the slain Jonathan and would-be heir to the throne of Israel, will live through the ruin of the house of Saul, thanks to his nurse. But he will never walk again. Mephibosheth's nurse. The nightmare comes and goes. I never know when that thief will steal my fragile hope as I picture the boy thriving on mutton and barley cakes. I'm told he no longer hangs his head, but amuses the king and his family at table with mimicry. He can outgrunt a camel or quake like a Philistine, unsorted. Queen pets him, though he's nearly nine, and this consoles. I smile in tears to remember dandling him on my lap, little cooing dove, I with no children of my own, nor a husband. There was thunder and smoke that night, a violent rattling with the hooves of cavalry pounding near to plunder and kill. I snatched the boy up. No, I wielded a king, and with Saul and his father slain, his weight terrified, 
I stumbled toward the hills on feet athwart and tangling in the din. And then the boy plunged from my arms, breaking and screaming on stony ground. I gathered him up, daring the gods to try another trick as we trekked on in the cold. I praise Yahweh for sparing the life of my lamb. But now, in far off Jerusalem, does he mock me too? Or forgive his old nurse's crippling fall? You are a savior and you take brokenness aside. 
15 years, over 5,000 suns have risen and set on the king who took Saul's place, the king selected by Yahweh himself, the king named David. And with this sunrise, a glimpse of what Yahweh sees in him, light takes hold of the palace stones warming them row by row as morning emerges from the east. Slowly, the capital awakes. Not Gibeah. David has made his home in Jerusalem amidst the hills of Judah. The king rises, eats, and goes about his day, but there is something on his mind. It's a memory. Or better, a series of memories, a collection of moments that shaped him, changed him, and even now comfort him in a sad kind of way. David is remembering his friend. It's so hard to have friends when you're in charge. But this friend, this one he made long ago, before he took on the burden of leadership, when, when things were simpler, this friend was an unexpected ally when David needed someone in his corner, an example of faith in Yahweh and submission to his plan of nerve on the battlefield and courage in life. His name was Jonathan, and he's been gone a long time now. All the house of Saul, scattered to the wind and put to the sword in those first days of transition, David wept when he heard about the violence others had perpetrated in his name. As a kind of penitent remembrance, David had kept anyone from claiming Saul's land even. It just sits there. All these years, David had never, has never forgotten Jonathan's friendship. And it was cold water when he was dying of thirst. It was a channel of Yahweh's love but circumstance pulled them apart in those last years. And then, well, Jonathan died in battle, and David never got a chance to say a final goodbye, offer a, a last thank you. And this gratitude in David's heart, it's beautiful, but, but unexpressed just feels like a weight. As if awakening from a trance, David calls for an attendant and asks a question. Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? The, end, the attendant doesn't know, but he mentions someone named Ziva, a now well-heeled man who served Saul years ago. They send for him and he arrives warily at the palace. Are you Ziba? Says David. Ziba's palms are sweating. He bows at your service. Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? The word he uses here for kindness is chesed. 
It's a kaleidoscopic word, meaning generosity and commitment and love, promise-keeping loyalty and fierce compassion. It's personal and, well, here, startling. Ziba blinks. Why would the king? But Ziba has no time to indulge his curiosity. It's clear the king wants an answer, and Ziba Ziba knows the answer, the exact answer to David's question. But there is a reason the king doesn't know. Ziba has kept this secret for years. Would he be betraying or endangering? Fifteen years of successful hiding brought to an end in a moment of Ziba. David waits. Ziba looks up at him and he cannot help but notice the king's eyes are full of, well, it looks like chesed. The servant swallows, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. David's eyes grow misty suddenly. Where? Where is he? He is at the house of Makir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Your love, oh Lord, reaches to the heavens, and your faithfulness stretches to the sky. are in the corner. A 20-year-old Mephibosheth glances at them when he hears the knock at the door, decides he can reach them, and shouts, perhaps, to Makir that he'll get it. He slides himself on his side across the blanketed floor, using his elbow, flexing his back, pulling again with his elbow, stretching his knees. 
He reaches maybe to a series of wooden handles installed in the wall, pulls himself up onto his knees and then balances precariously for a moment on his unhelpful feet as he moves the crutches beneath his shoulders. The knock comes again, insistent. Finally, Mephibosheth opens the door and gasps. A group of royal soldiers in full dress. One of them looks him up and down and then speaks, the king has sent for you. Mephibosheth's heart drops. So, this day has finally come. Escape was only ever a fantasy. So be it. In the palace, David paces. They should be arriving any sec. And then the escort enters. David looks immediately past the attendants to the man on crutches. His head is pointed downward as he carefully navigates the room. David watches as finally the young man stops and looks up at him before he bows. Mephibosheth. It is not a question. There is no question as to his identity. He looks. Tears fall from the corners of David's eyes now. Mephibosheth looks like his dad. Suddenly, David is not a middle-aged man. He's not king. He's not up to his ears and stress and pressure and drama. He's 20, and he's scared of Saul's death threats and grateful for a prince who, for some reason, shows kindness, acts like an older brother and friend, defending David, helping him, praying with him. David's father never thought much of him. His brothers followed suit. King Saul, when he hired David as court musician, well, death threats and all. But Jonathan, Jonathan was a gift. And now David is, he's suddenly standing with his old friend, Mephibosheth, he says again, at your service comes the reply. But David can see that the young man is scared, understandably. No, no, don't be afraid, David says, moving toward him, for I will surely show you kindness for, this, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. The king wipes a tear from his eye, perhaps. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth's brow wrinkles in confusion. For one, David hasn't even glanced at the crutches. They always look at the crutches. It's like, it's like he's not even lame at all. Like his wound is gone. Like he's who he might have been, was meant to be. But then this kindness, it's too much. Mephibosheth drops to his knees and bows before the king. What is your servant? He says that you should notice a dead dog like me. At this David flashes back, surely to the moment years and years ago, when after months of being hunted by a paranoid King Saul, he'd reached the end of himself and exposed his concealed position to plead for mercy. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway, David had shouted. Should he spend his time chasing one who's as worthless as a dead dog? It seems Yahweh has a penchant for giving dead dogs a home. A purpose. 
Ziba, David calls. I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. And then David glances at Mephibosheth's feet for the first time, perhaps, and looks back to Ziba, you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him, bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Ziba bows, shocked. Is this what God's kindness looks like? David looks at the young man's face now and Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. Tears now in the corners of Mephibosheth's eyes.
Hi, my name is Sabrina Palomino, and uh, I've been a part of Fellowship for 23 years. And uh, this has been a year with um, Spectra uh, Creative Collective. From the moment when I, I was reading David's life, I was introduced to Jonathan in a special way, how he, he um, right away connected with David. And all along their time together, he was always showing up, being um, protective and um, always showing that loving kindness. I think it touched my heart that uh, someone would love you that much to put their life on the line with their own family member. That, uh, and he was literally giving up his seat, you know, next to the throne. It didn't matter to him. He loved him and he was okay with who God chose. And I, I thought that was beautiful. So when I first was drawing out this um, image, multiple in images, um, Jonathan was originally inside the, the picture. Here we have um, David and Mephibosheth, and um, this was totally different. I had David over here, and I had Jonathan on this side, and the table was more this in this position, and Mephibosheth was in, in the middle, and both David and Jonathan's hands were like grasping. As I got down to it, it was like, oh, remembered that he had already passed, and I couldn't put him in, and. I was kind of disappointed because I wanted him in there in that moment and I would, didn't know how to make him like part of it, um, like in a translucent type of um, feel. But um, so he had to not be in there and I felt bad about that because I really wanted to him to be there to see that David, you know, fulfilled that promise and he did it in a beautiful way. He restored his life. He. Um, restored his dignity. And what really stood out was, um, there's a moment where he, he tells him, he welcomes him like a son, and like his, you will always have a seat at my table. Well, when I was painting um, th this portion of, of, or this picture of, of David and Mephibosheth, I was thinking about, um, God's loving kindness and uh, and how he he brings us to the table, his table. He welcomes us, and he does that. He did that um, in his sacrifice to us as he laid down his own life. And he's going to to welcome us to that table when he comes again, and and I'm excited about that. It's been years since that day in Lodabar when Jonathan's son heard the knock at his door. He looks down now at his clothing, fine linen. He looks down at his food, choice morsels sitting atop the king's own table. He looks down at his lap, his own little boy smiling up at him. He misses his dad still, of course, even after all these years. But David tells some stories, and Mephibosheth feels closer to Jonathan than he has in a long time. David feels the same way.
And Yahweh, Yahweh looks on these sons of his, scarred by battle and age and loss, injured by a fallen world. He smiles, not forever. One day, right here in the city of David, another king will send for the hidden, the isolated, the afraid, prostitutes and tax collectors, women and men who are not used to being invited to tables like his. Jesus of Nazareth will take these dead dogs in his arms and they will look at him, brows wrinkled in confusion, wondering why he's not looking at their crutches, feeling just for a moment in the midst of his gaze like they're not lame at all, like their wounds are gone, like they are who they might have been or meant to be. And they'll eat with him forever, this tribe of misfits and mess-ups, this clan of the ashamed and the forgotten. And they, of course they will, they'll be convinced that he has showered on them unspeakable grace, and they'll be right, but they won't know how could they. They won't know, they won't have any idea how happy their presence makes him. Well, maybe one of them will. A king who used his immense power to adopt. Who didn't see a handicap, but a face he deeply loved. David, shepherd, warrior, poet, sinner. will sit alongside the broken, you and me. And he will know a little more than us how glad Yahweh is to have us there. We'll see it on his face, though, in our God's shimmering eyes. We'll see something that looks like kindness, but more generosity and commitment and love, promise-keeping loyalty and fierce compassion. Chesed, a kaleidoscope. Of grace. Wounded and forsaken, I was shattered by the fall. Broken and forgotten, feeling lost and all alone. Summoned by the King into the Master's court. Lifted by the Savior, cradled in His arms, I was carried to the table, seated where I don't belong. Carried to the table. Swept away by his love And I don't see my brokenness anymore When I'm seated at the table of the Lord Carried to the table Table of the 
family. Commentator Tom Constable, he ties it up with this here. Hear these words. A sensitive reader will observe many parallels between Mephibosheth himself or herself and between David and God. As Mephibosheth had fallen, was deformed as a result of his fall, was hiding in a place of barrenness and was fearful of the king. So is the sinner. David took the initiative to seek out Mephibosheth in spite of his unloveliness, bring him into his house and presence, and adopt him as his own son. He also shared his bounty and fellowship with this undeserving one for the rest of his life because of Jonathan, as God has done with us Christians for the sake of Christ. So we're at the Lord's table this morning. 
body broken for us has made a way for us to be at this table. And now we, those who trusted his death and resurrection, sit as children of the king. Take and eat. His blood shed on our behalf to atone for our sins and to close the deal in this adoption that would turn away the wrath of God and bring us into the embrace of life. Take and drink. The church family this morning, if you specifically have some needs that you would like prayer for, we have our prayer room to your right through these doors. They'd love to pray with you. In light of God's kindness, this kaleidoscope of grace, this word that's hard to understand, in light of what he's shown to us, let's be a church in kind that walks in kindness to one another in here and to those outside these walls. Have a great week, Fellowship Fayetteville. We'll see you next week. I was carried to the table Seated where I don't belong Carried to the table Swept away by his love And I don't see my brokenness anymore When I'm seated at the table of the Lord I'm carried to the table The table of the Lord I'm carried to the table Table of